according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Proverbs 22 this morning. Proverbs 22. And we're looking at uh, verses 10, 11, and 12. We'll see if we get that far today. Keeping an eye on uh, how many Wednesdays it takes us to get through a chapter and how far I think we'll get by the end of the year. Remember next year is our uh, Through the Bible year, so Proverbs will be put on hold, Genesis will be put on hold, Philemon will be put on hold, everything. That's what we're doing after Colossians. And uh, anyway, just trying to gauge, since we're about the midpoint of the year, where, uh, where I think we're going to be in December when we, have that, when we have that big break for our Through the Bible series. All right, before we do get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in His Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in Your faithfulness, Father. The faithfulness that You've manifest in uh, saving us and giving us Your Word and opening our eyes and teaching us all day, every day, Father, moment by moment, you are so faithful. And we just praise you and thank you and love you and call upon you now uh, for this hour to, uh, to open our eyes, to open our ears, and to soften our hearts. Might we receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 22. Uh, last week we uh, were looking at throwing people out of the church, and that comes from verse 10 there, <laughs> as it says. And uh, now we've had the academic instruction, we've got to have a practical application, I've got to find somebody to throw out of here at some point. But we seem to be rather low on scoffers at the moment, so uh, I may not have that opportunity anytime soon. But it does say, Proverbs 22.10, drive out the scoffer and contention will go out. And that just kind of preaches itself and it makes sense. If, uh, if you get the guy out of here, then that diminishes the conflict and, and the struggles that come about. Now obviously that's not the first step. There's other things that we do. We want to rebuke, we want to correct, we want to uh, in fact the New Testament tells us that after a first and second warning that we have grace procedures involved whereby we want to try to win our brother. We want to try to rescue the the one that's been captive in the angelic conflict. And so as we looked at it last week, let me get the slide up here. The um, and I fixed one of the typos on this slide to where we have Proverbs 21, 24, that's rightly. I failed to fix the other typo where there should be a space in between the, the Hebrew letters and the English letters there. So anyway, the word is lates, L-E-T-S, <coughs> lates. Strong's number is 3887. It is used 16 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, this is the scoffer. This is someone, this is beyond a fool. Um, you know, the fool at least there's some hope for the fool. Uh, You can fix ignorance uh, by providing the information. You can provide the wisdom to overcome the the lack of wisdom and the the circumstance that the fool is under. But the uh, it's bugging me, excuse me. There we go. My clip came loose. All right. The um, so the fool can be can be remedied. We can fix ignorance. Ignorance is 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 fixable, but the scoffer, 
what, what can you do to, to the person who's, who thinks he knows it all anyway, who thinks he knows more than you do, who thinks that uh, the Word of God is foolish? At that point, there's no remedy other than God's hand of corrective discipline and a miracle on God's part to maybe humble the arrogant, uh, to bring him to the point that he stops being a scoffer, and at which point then perhaps he can listen to truth. So we went through this slide, we looked at the uses in Psalms and Isaiah, we looked at all the, the 14 uses in Proverbs, I think we got through the whole slide to, uh, to recognize this, but the, the imperative to drive him out is, uh, is clear, that this is to the benefit of the congregation in, uh, in this way. Alright? Moving from there, two issues I want to get to in verse 11 and in verse 12. He who loves purity of heart he who loves purity of heart. Let me get the Bible up here. Proverbs twenty-two, eleven. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. The king is his friend. So what are we dealing with here? Um, just like the verse before where it kind of seems to be a, a no-brainer. Uh, you know, get rid of the troublemaker and you have less trouble. I mean, figure that one out. Um, same thing here. He who loves purity of heart, whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. So what's this about? What's this verse trying to say? And, and <clears throat> beyond the obvious, uh, the kind of friends that anybody would want to have, not only a king, but anybody would want to have a friend like this. Who wouldn't love a pure heart? Who wouldn't love gracious lips? And then I stop and say, well, wait a minute. I can... There's a whole lot of folks I can think of. The, the scoffer, the unbeliever, the, the person without divine viewpoint. Um, in fact, somebody with a pure heart, that might not be a good friend at all to somebody with a wicked heart, to somebody that, that wants to walk in the darkness, to someone that hates the Word of God. And gracious lips, um, you know, we, we live, we're surrounded by a people that are not, they don't have the gracious lips. They've got uh, their speech is contemptible and vile. And uh, the things that they speak is co- completely contrary to the things that we speak. And that reflects their heart, which is contrary to our heart. So, um, you know, the more you dwell on this issue and you think about, okay, a pure heart and gracious lips, um, this is actually more the exception than the rule. This, uh, somebody that stands out like this, um, I would want to rewrite the verse to say, okay, whoever loves a pure heart and gracious lips, um, that's a father's friend who would be thrilled if his daughter was dating a guy like this. <laughs> okay? Um, you know, I can think of other contexts as well whereby uh, is a king's friend if, uh, assuming of course, that the king is oriented to Bible doctrine, that the king is saved, that the king is humble before the Lord um, in under the ideal circumstances. And more often than not, uh, this is something that we find in Proverbs that recognizes this is how things normally operate for believers living in the Word of God. Uh, for unbelievers living in the world's wisdom, forget it, all bets are off. <laughs> all right, He may not be the king's friend if the king is, is, a, is a wicked king. And so I want to look at these verses, the ones that are in Proverbs that specifically relate to this idea and then, because we've seen it before, chapter 14, chapter 16, we've had Proverbs before that have addressed how a believer with doctrine relates to their, their government, relates to uh, politics, or relates to the sovereignty of the king that's over them. And then I'm going to go beyond that to demonstrate that this very principle 
is actually a prophecy. It's actually a picture of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the king that's being spoken of here. And he's the one that's pleasing to his father. And we've had other examples as well. So we're going to get to those verses as well. Don't, don't get too far ahead on the slide at the moment. Let's just start with this. And then we'll get to the rest of the slide here shortly. But recognize what it's saying here for its own sake and what we've previously studied related to uh, believers walking in wisdom and how we might be friendly with the king or how we, we might be hostile to the king. Do you remember this passage from Proverbs 14, 35? The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is towards him who acts shamefully. All right, so we have the contrast in the poetic parallelism here on the one hand, on the other hand. And again, the servant who acts wisely, we recognize in the context of Proverbs, is according to God's wisdom. Uh, his anger toward him who acts shamefully. And uh, again, the assumption is, is, is being made here that the king in view, written by Solomon, right? Uh, understanding Solomon's background, understanding David's background, uh, understanding King Saul's background before David. You can have a variety of kings. And even Solomon, after he writes this, is going to plunge into sin and darkness and ugliness that uh, will not be a reflection of, of this verse here. Um, so this, again, assumes that the king is a believer living in the Word of God, positive to doctrine, and uh, who's going to appreciate having uh, born-again believers around him with, with that same perspective. You know, uh, so if that's why we pray for our president, we pray for our, our governor, we pray for our any political leader, our mayor, um, and and we're we're delighted, we're blessed if we know first of all that they're saved and that they they have some basis of biblical teaching and that they have advisors, people around them, maybe a vice president or somebody that has doctrinal teaching that's going to serve to to reinforce uh, and strengthen them during the during the difficult times. And so that that makes sense as well. How about 16.13? Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. Again, we can imagine very quickly a wicked king. We can imagine a, you know, a King Ahab or, or Jezebel or anybody that uh, is a wicked king. Uh, they're not going to fit into this verse here. Um, they're not going to necessarily like the righteous lips. In fact, the righteous lips might anger them because they have an unrighteous uh, rule and an unrighteous perspective. Um, speaking right might anger them. Uh, think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown into the fiery furnace uh, because at that moment the king was not righteous, the king was not uh, focused on truth. In fact, I think that's the very event that gets Nebuchadnezzar saved is when, when he sees the, the salvation there of, of those boys through the fire. And so taking all three of these passages, I think, and then of course the one we're looking at today, the, uh, whoops, 22.11, he who loves purity of heart, whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. This is certainly applicable when the king is saved, when the king is oriented to uh, God's wisdom. And uh, again, all things being equal under the ideal circumstances Proverbs presents for believers, this uh, verse is absolutely true. Now, beyond that, beyond just the verse for its own sake is the larger principle, I think, the, the bigger picture, the fact that we actually have a, uh, a description of Jesus Christ Himself. And one that we see, let me just pick it up here, 
illustrated again and again in uh, the biblical stories. So when we go to Psalm 45, you familiar with Psalm 45? It's an enthronement psalm, it's a glorious song, it's uh, looking forward to the millennium, it's looking forward to the king, um, one that uh, you know, could have come sooner rather than later had Israel not rejected their king and crucified him and had he not departed for heaven until uh, the future time that the Father says, all right now go forth and rule in the midst of your enemies. Uh, but in any event, it's a love song. For the choir director according to Shoshanim, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song of love. A lot of descriptions attached to this. Uh, multiple uh, prescripts that get attached to this in the, in the Hebrew text. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You know, there's certain momentous events in life, certain momentous events in, in a nation's history or other circumstances of, of somebody's personal life when you just, particularly if you're creative, if you're musical, where uh, it just the, the, the muse strikes you and you just feel compelled. You have this creative spark that on the basis of these life circumstances you, you, you want to put it to music, you want to put it to song. And uh, this is what the psalmist here is talking about. Because this king is awesome. This is a king unlike any that they've ever seen before, ever thought about before. You are fairer than the sons of man. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. And the very description that we had, the gracious lips that we saw in Proverbs 22, we see it expressed here. And it's curious to me if, if uh, probably more likely that Psalm 22 influenced Psalm if Proverbs 22 influenced Psalm 45 or if Psalm 45 influenced Proverbs 22, which way do you think it went? <laughs> okay, well, hard to say. You've got to then kind of decide on when the sons of Korah were doing their writings and when it got canonized and when it was added to the Psalter and, and things like that. Um, but could, could Solomon have been the king in view when the, when the sons of Korah were writing this? Might David have been the king in view when the sons of Korah were writing this? Or was it simply a prophetic vision looking forward exclusively to Jesus Christ? And they weren't seeing David or Solomon or any other king in view at this time. These are the kind of things you have to deal with when you're looking at the Psalms. So fairer than the sons of men, grace is poured out upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. So the king, this is, this is his description, and if he finds somebody else that has that like-mindedness, somebody else besides him that loves a pure heart and has gracious lips, well then that's going to be the king's friend. All right, And then maybe he'll get a position in the administration or not. Maybe uh, it's just simply um, a, an, an informal position that says, you're living in my palace, you're eating at my table. <laughs> I want you around. I want to bounce ideas off of you. I want to pray with you. I want to, I want to do these things. See? Almost like um, the, uh, the benefit that uh, Meriwether Lewis had with uh, Thomas Jefferson. You know, he lived with the president as they, they're planning out this, this whole journey, that, uh, you know, the Lewis and Clark expedition, and, and he's, he's, it's like being the king's friend, being the president's friend, and hashing out these plans and these ideas and discussing what it would be like to explore a continent and uh, trying, to, uh, trying to do that. Anyway, 
I recommend my favorite, by the way, uh, Stephen Ambrose, if you want to read it. It's called Undaunted Courage. And it's, uh, I think it's the, one of the best treatments of the Lewis and Clark expedition that you're going to find. All right, so we have description of Jesus himself. This is his attitude. This is uh, a description of his reign. You can see more here. Um, in fact, all of Psalm 45 is glorious. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. In your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemy. I think this is clearly more Davidic than Solomonic. Uh, David was the man of war. David's the one that conquered his enemy. Solomon was a man of peace. And, uh, and of course, Jesus, when he comes, second advent is going to come as a conqueror. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. They knew the coming Messiah was going to be God himself. God himself was going to be ruling. God, the Word made flesh, and we understand this. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And uh, so many places where David himself recognizes that his son, the son of David, was going to be God in the flesh, was going to be God himself. And that is how he can talk to God, but then speak of his God because you have God the Son and God the Father in this view. Similar to Psalm 110, similar to other passages where these things were, I think they were plain and obvious, that's my perspective with the hindsight, but even in Jesus' day, he threw this in the Pharisees' face and said, what's your answer to this? And they didn't want to answer that. So they, they acted like they couldn't. Uh, but I think Jesus made it very clear that they absolutely could and should, and their non-answer was, was answer enough. But the oil of joy above your fellows. Who is it that's a fellow with the king? The friend of the king. Who are his fellows? And beyond who he's reigning over. See, we have the advantage again with hindsight, with a dispensational perspective, because the mystery has been unveiled. We have a perspective to look back and we can see, uh, knowing, of course, a bride of Christ concept that Israel never had a clue about. And in fact, that's going to get introduced here as well. In, uh, in shadows because there's a, there's a, a queen. <laughs> okay? This king's going to get married. There's going to be a reason to celebrate. And the Jewish people would have had no clue what the bride of Christ was going to be or, or who the king was going to marry or anything of the sort. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces stringed instruments have made you glad. And then we have a hymn that's based on this, Out of the Ivory Palaces. And it's fun to sing and, and think about not only obviously the first advent of Jesus Christ and the humility that He expressed to come and save us, but really the glories that are on the way in second advent. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. And uh, can't uh, break the mystery, can't reveal the church at this point. There's not a clue that it's Jews and Gentiles united together in one body, baptized into personal union with Jesus Christ. No, no clues at all of anything New Testament. But there is a, a, a preview, if you will. There's a hint, there's a, a taste that when God Himself becomes king and, and rules in the, on the throne of David in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a queen standing at His right hand. Okay? 
there you have it. Anyway, there's more. If because uh, there's the king's daughter, and oh, it's a fun song. That's Psalm 45. So the uh, the proverb here, Proverbs 22:11, it is descriptive uh, of Jesus Himself. Beyond, of course, the content, the doctrine that it teaches in its own right. But then we have these other illustrations. Think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh loved having, uh, having Joseph, having a, a man with a pure heart and gracious lips, somebody that where the Spirit of God was leading him and he could, he could shepherd them through the famine. That uh, after the seven years of plenty there was going to be seven years of famine. And uh, if he didn't promote uh, uh, Joseph then Egypt was in trouble, the whole world was in trouble. And we have the pattern there. And you can read that in uh, in Genesis 41. You can even read the uh, description there where Pharaoh's advisors are saying you need a special advisor and it's none of us. <laughs> you know, you need to find a man. You need to appoint a man. And um, this was a, a verse that we looked at Sunday morning when we were talking about Eve and her appointed son. And uh, we looked at that verb for to set, to place, to appoint, and how uh, prophetic it is when these appointed sons are in the right place at the right time, used by the hand of God to accomplish His purpose and His glory. And uh, Joseph was that man in, uh, in Egypt in, in Genesis 41. Or think about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3 and the, um, the blessings of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the and the stories there. You see, we learn these stories in Sunday school, but the, the doctrine connected with them is significant. So a pure heart and gracious lips. That was Daniel in spades. And he even won over the, 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 the servant that was sent to administer their diet and, and uh, who was going to enforce the, uh, the idolatrous food. And, and Daniel had a, uh, he replied with uh, discernment and discretion. And uh, Arioch, the, the king's, the chief of the king's uh, eunuchs there, he was won over by the pure heart and the gracious lips. Then Nebuchadnezzar was won over by the pure heart and the gracious lips. And so you have the stories there. And, and then even after the Persians conquered, you know the first order of business when you conquer another people is you've got to get rid of those, those uh, previous rulers, right? So uh, Belteshazzar was executed that night, all the other advisors were executed that night, all the other political officials you know, the, the, the Persians swept in and they conquered the Babylonians. And so, uh, and then Darius the Mede becomes the dictatorial governor over a conquered city. Daniel stays in office. How does that happen? <laughs> How does Daniel go from being Belteshazzar's, uh, you know, a Babylonian counselor to now being a Persian counselor uh, giving uh, service, faithful service to, to Darius the Mede? Again, it's an appointed servant in the hand of God, the right man at the right time, used by God in a very gracious and powerful way as God shapes human history. Then you think about Artaxerxes and uh, the story of, of Esther. But even before Esther, uh, you've got Ezra and Nehemiah. Now these are probably not as well known to us. Ezra 7 and Nehemiah chapter 2 and then 
course, Mordecai for Ahasuerus. And it's curious to me, these appointed servants and uh, men of, of pure heart, men of gracious lips, men that um, you know, could, could be killed on a whim. They're just they're Jews, they're, they're, they're captives, they're slaves, they're um, you know, living in, in Persia and, and um, you know, if they want to return, they can, uh, Cyrus has decreed that they can return. Uh, if, they, if they stay, well, why are they staying here? And, and why wouldn't, and, and obviously the, the resentment cre- uh, grows and grows and grows because uh, Haman wants to murder them all, wants to have them all dead. So anyway, when you read through uh, Ezra chapter 7 here and you see this, uh, after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah. Are you bored with all this? I hope not. Because we're on the verge of getting to Genesis chapter 5. Next Sunday we'll be in Genesis chapter 5 and we got, we got Toledoth and genealogies and stuff. All right. Son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, where did I lose off? Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, oh, there's a hero, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. Aha. That's significant, okay? Because remember, the priestly line descends from Aaron. If you, if you don't descend from Aaron, you can't be a priest. And specifically knowing which son of Aaron, because Aaron had four sons, but two of them the Lord killed. Nadab and Abihu the Lord killed. And so it's really Eleazar and Ithamar, the only two surviving sons of Aaron. And all of the descendants of, of Eleazar and Ithamar are the ones that are eligible to be serving as priests to uh, the Levitical priesthood, to the nation of Israel. And then David organized them and structured them in his day, uh, kind of crafted them into the, the clans that they fell into, into 24 divisions of, of the Levites, of the priests. And uh, 16 of them from Ithamar, or from uh, Eleazar, and 8 of them from Ithamar into 24 courses or divisions of the, of the Aaronic priesthood. And so um, anyway, yeah, when you, when you read about Eleazar, when you read about Phineas and uh, the great hero there in, uh, in the wilderness wanderings, and then uh, the descendants from there. Working your way down, Abishua, Buki, Uzi, Zerah, work your way back up, and then eventually you get to Ezra. And you can imagine, you've got this great lineage. You've got this great he- uh, heritage, the legacy and the blessings. And you can track your, uh, however many generations that is, you can track your descent all the way back to, to Aaron himself. And so you're eligible to be a priest. You should be a priest. Problem is, your temple's destroyed. You were captive in, in Babylon. Now you're captive in Persia. You know, what do you do when you're a slave in Persia and your temple's gone? Well, Ezra's going to lead them back. Ezra and Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, they lead three waves of, of Jewish returnees from the captivity back to, to Jerusalem so they can build a new temple. And that's what happens here. So uh, this Ezra, <laughs> not to be confused with any other Ezra, okay? this one, the son of all these guys, went up from Babylon and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses which the Lord God of Israel had given. And this is another development. Okay, The, the development of the scribes, the development of 
they, could, they, couldn't, they couldn't function as priests, they couldn't do animal sacrifices, they couldn't, so they, for 70 years in the captivity, they just became experts in, in the text. They become, became experts in, in the law. So skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all he requested. This is what we're talking about, the illustration of Proverbs twenty-two eleven, because of the pure heart and the gracious lips. The king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. What a grace provision. And I expect, you know, the other servants and whatnot, they were all grumbling and mumbling. That's the nature of, you know, teacher's pet or whatever, or king's favorite. or You know, you get... But when God's hand is upon him to specifically bring this about, praise God. Because, uh, again, it's his sovereignty over human history. So some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, all these people that are unemployed <laughs> until a new temple gets built. You know, if you're going to be a gatekeeper and a temple servant, you kind of need gates in a temple. They went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And uh, the history on that. On the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. On the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. So it paved the way and the travel was great. You know, you don't just hop on Southwest Airlines and fly. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. In fact, in all of the, the history of Judaism, of course, Moses was the lawgiver, and then you've got you get uh, Samuel was the greatest of the prophets since Moses. But ultimately, by the time you get to Ezra the scribe, there's no greater name in all of, uh, of Judaism. There's no greater name for preserving the canon, for compiling the canon, probably for uh, placing the various books in the order that they're in, uh, compiling the, the, the final edition of the, of the Psalms and the, and the Proverbs and everything else. Uh, writing uh, the Chronicles and and everything else. Ezra gets a lot of credit for the Old Testament canon as we've received it, as it existed in Jesus' day and as, it, as we receive it today. So tremendous study on Ezra. And it's unfortunate that the, that era is uh, the least known. The post-captivity uh, era is the least known era of, of our Bible. And uh, something I was trying to encourage, uh, I thought Lewis Roth had a great interest in this era of Old Testament history and I was trying to encourage him to pursue these studies and really develop it out because there's a lot there that needs to be done and it's not greatly um, explored in, in doctrinal circles. So, uh, so there you have it. And then Artaxerxes issues a decree. This is a, the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. And so here's the decree. We pay attention to these for other reasons as well. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, of the God of heaven. What perspective does Artaxerxes have for the God of heaven? This is curious to me. Perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that if any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. 
and to bring the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Giving permission and funding this. Isn't that amazing? With all the silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the freewill offerings of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God which is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? So to build the temple, to fund the sacrifices, and then whatever is left over becomes your operational expenses and whatever else you want to do with it as it seems good to you. Also the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. The rest of the needs for the house of your God for which you may have occasion to provide, provide for it from the royal treasury. So as we've gone through this decree from top to bottom we've seen that the, the, the central issue in this decree is on the temple. On the temple, on the offerings, on the sacrifices, on the priests. It's not about the, the city, certainly not about the city walls, it's not about the defense of the city. Uh, we, we have to be careful when we're trying to apply the decrees that apply to Daniel chapter 9. And I think that's where the confusion comes in in a lot of folks. This is not fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9. All right. I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently. Even up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt as needed. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. A little bit selfish on his part, but he figures if he does something nice for Ezra's God, then uh, it'll reflect kindly upon him and uh, Persia. We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. So, the idea of churches today that are tax-exempt, that's not new. <laughs> goes back a long, long time. Whoever will not observe the law of your God or the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or banishment or confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. Anyway, so this is all in, in Ezra chapter 7 and shows the relationship of Ezra. Let's look now at Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. Okay? Years have now gone by. We've, we've advanced from Ezra to Nehemiah. We're now in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. It came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. And so now we've, we've advanced from, uh, from Ezra to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not a priest. Nehemiah is the cupbearer. He's the he's the uh, probably um, the also the taster the one that keeps the king from getting uh, assassinated right he, so the king can't be poisoned if if uh, if if uh, Nehemiah 
because Nehemiah would be poisoned first if something funny was happening to the wine there. Anyway, I had not been sad in his presence. And so here's a Jew that did not go back with Zerubbabel, did not go back with Ezra. Here's a Jew that stayed now in Persia. And it's now the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, because he had not let on. He had uh, uh, not been sad in his presence, and yet he detected that. So I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? All right, so remember in Ezra 7, the focus was on the temple, on the rebuilding the temple, the offerings, the sacrifices, the priests. In this chapter, the emphasis is now on the city, on the city and the walls, the defendability of Jerusalem. So the city lies desolate. Its gates have been consumed by fire. And so the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Because he's about to have a very big ask on this. This is, this is huge. Okay? It's one thing to build a city. But to build, I mean, to build a temple. And, and the, the pagan king might think, okay, well that's fine. Pray to your God and he'll be nice to me. But to, to build a fortified city with walls, something that might become the base of a rebellion. I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the province beyond the river. See, some of those rascals were very hostile. And they were, they were doing what they could to destroy uh, any, anything the Jews were, were trying to build there. So uh, let me take letters to those governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and the house which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Again, God granted favor. God granted favor. And here's Nehemiah with his pure heart and gracious lips. And God is granting the favor. <clears throat> so I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, gave them the king's letters, and the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, so when Sanballat of the, Hor- the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. These are the obstacles that I mentioned. Anyway, and so you read the story on this and they have to rebuild the walls and sometimes they have a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other and, uh, and these issues here. Anyway, this decree, the decree by Artaxerxes Longimanus, this is his second decree. And, and we have to track these decrees because Cyrus issues a decree, Darius issues a decree, and Artaxerxes issues two decrees. And there's four decrees that we can find in Scripture. And those four decrees we find in Scripture we have to ask ourselves because they come at widely different dates from, from these different kings, from three different kings over this span of time. 
And it becomes significant because of, of Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9 is, is a powerful prophecy that centers on 70 sevens, 70 septads of years. Okay? And this is the decree that God has prophesied. It's a calendar for the Messiah and for the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven in 62. And so this becomes a focus of, of eschatological study, prophetic study. This becomes a, a key in the book of Daniel to study this decree. And there are arguments for all four decrees that you can find in the Bible. And there are some that just ferociously defend the decree of Cyrus. And there's some that defend the decree of Darius. And I don't know too many that, that defend the, the first decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, but it's the second decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, the decree of Nehemiah chapter 2. Because you'll notice, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That seems to be more fitting with the, the city walls and the city gates, the request that, that Nehemiah uh, was making there in Nehemiah chapter 2. And so taking that as your start date, then you start counting your, your 69 sevens and coming to him. Because what happens then is Messiah the Prince is executed. After the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Jesus Christ is crucified. Okay? And if you want to get more on this, it's in the Daniel notebook. I spell it out in, in tremendous detail and, and I'm completely indebted to Harold Honer and his, his chronology and the issues there. But the idea after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The very day after those, that this calendar is finished, the very next day is when Jesus rode into Jerusalem humble on a colt and the children were singing Hosanna and uh, the, throwing down the palm branches and, and welcoming their king. The very next day after the 69th seven is concluded. And then the prince who is to come destroys the city and the sanctuary. That's 70 A.D., 37 years later. All right. The last example is Ahasuerus, what uh, secular history calls Xerxes in Esther chapter 10. And this is the promotion of Mordecai. And... Um, Yeah, Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Another example, a pure heart and gracious lips who winds up being the king's friend because uh, this is how God moves. And it's, it's uh, you know, imagine it, it, it angers Satan every time it happens. I imagine Satan has worked so hard to put his diabolical agents into every office, every political office he can, and uh, he does everything he can to pervert uh, every, every human ruler, and then God comes along and just has the, the sovereign overruling will of God that, that uh, puts people where he wants them to accomplish his good pleasure. All right, speaking of battling Satan, we got verse 12 of Proverbs 22. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words 
of the treacherous man. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. Proverbs 22, 12. You realize that teaching truth is sometimes confrontational. Very often it's confrontational. Uh, a lot of times it's, it has a bit of energy behind it, some, some forceful um, destruction that comes because Satan hates the truth. And uh, this principle I think is very clear. Preserving knowledge requires forcefully overthrowing Satan's agents. Requires forcefully overthrowing Satan's agents. Again, Proverbs 22, 12. And if you want a New Testament passage to go with us, the book of Titus, Titus 1, verses 7 through 9. We've seen this a couple times recently in our Sunday afternoon Grace Notes class. The, uh, the recognition that this is the duty of a shepherd. This is why you have shepherds, to deal with the wolves. You've got to protect the sheep. So overthrowing, this is a violent term. This is a term for, you know, like the overthrowing of a city or the throwing down of city walls. He overthrows the words of the treacherous man. Whoever that may be, whatever agent of Satan that God has put, or that Satan has put into use, all right? And beyond all human applications, this is actually a divine application. God does this. God himself does this as he shepherds humanity through human history to the point where uh, he, he installs his king upon the throne. It's a divine application of omniscience and a primary expression of God's nature. It's a divine application of omniscience and a primary expression of God's nature. You ever stop to think about what God's been doing since he created this world? <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, and none of us really, of course there's no deists here that I'm aware of, but, but a lot of times even Christians... Um, kind of fall into a mindset that reflects the, the deistic worldview that, yeah, God created everything back then, and yes, He's got a plan for someday. There's a kingdom on the way. It'll get here eventually, right? And so we kind of get this, this, this mindset that God was very involved way back when He created everything, and He will be very involved in the future when he puts an end to all this insanity and, and, and rules this place. But kind of in the here and now, is he really doing much? Is, is God active? Is God doing things? What is God doing now? And sadly, I think, um, I don't know whether it's, it's, it's thought out this, this comprehensively or not, I think a lot of times Christians are, get the idea that God's not doing a lot these days. That he's just, you know, Jesus is sitting there waiting to be sent, and the Father's just sitting there waiting to, waiting to send him, and we're just sitting here waiting to, waiting to go home, and, and it's just, it's like everybody's just sitting around doing nothing. That's not the case. God is actually very active, and even when he tells his son, sit at my right hand, it's until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, because God the Father is very busy in the here and now. God the Father is very active, that he is at work. As we, as we read here, the eyes of the Lord. What are the eyes of the Lord doing? Well, they're busy. We see the eyes of the Lord in a variety of places. The eyes of the Lord. This is a, an omniscience expression. It's a metaphor, but it, speak, it poetically speaks to His omnipresence. 
God is everywhere. He sees everything. There's nothing that He's failed to observe. The eyes of the Lord rove to and fro. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. There is nowhere you can go to hide from the eyes of the Lord. The highest heaven, the lowest hell, everywhere in between, the eyes of the Lord can see what you're doing. You cannot hide from God. And as an idiom, as an expression, we've seen that before. I didn't read the Titus passage yet, did I? I'll, I'll get back to that. I'll take it a little, little out of order. Um, but Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. And praise God for that. Because, <laughs> you know, we watch the news, we're praying for our country, we wonder how much worse can it get? We don't want to say that out loud and tempt the Lord. But we still have to wonder and we pray, say, okay, Lord, you got a plan for this, right? <laughs> you know, you know what you're doing, right? And uh, yes, his eyes are in every place. And uh, the things that we see, God's plan is right on track. He's watching the evil and the good. He's got a handle on it. We can rejoice over that. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. So beyond the fact that God is omnipresent, that He is particularly watching us. That we are in His, you know, the, the immediate forefront of His attention. That He has a particular focus, taking care of His children, taking care of the righteous, waiting for our prayers, listening to our cries. But the face of the Lord is against the evildoers. So uh, He's gazing upon us in love and He's Fierce looking against them. Second Chronicles sixteen nine. That's got to be a good one. We don't often turn to Second Chronicles, right? But I like it as an expression of the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. And so uh, a rebuke against King Asa, angry with a seer, put him in prison, <laughs> for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. You know, you, you may find that if you're a, a, an accurate Bible teacher that, you know, the truth may not be popular depending on the administration, depending on the, the mood of the population at that time. But there you go. It's like um, when Jehoshaphat, when we had the reading last week when uh, Jehoshaphat went and teamed up with the king of Israel and, and the king of Israel had all his Baal prophets and, and all that and Jehoshaphat's like uh, you know how about a Yahweh prophet? You got any of those around? <laughs> we should ask of Yahweh and, and the king of Israel was like well there's, there is one but I hate him. <laughs> he says there is one but I hate him. And, and I laugh every time I read that verse because I think isn't that isn't that the way things go? All right, so we have the eyes of the Lord. And if, uh, as we see it here in Proverbs twenty-two twelve, we have the eyes of the Lord. And when we think about what, what He's doing, what are we seeing now? The eyes of the Lord, God's omniscience, His omnipresence, as God is very active in this world. He's active towards believers. He's active towards unbelievers. He's active towards uh, hostile kings. He's active towards... Uh, not what you know, we would think in terms of geopolitical events. But here we find he's involved in knowledge or what's falsely called knowledge. Okay, Preserving knowledge and overthrowing the words of 
the treacherous man. So in a sense, what do we see here? God is a fact checker. (laughs) God is obviously he's the God of truth because he is true. He is the absolute truth and his adversary is the liar, the liar from the beginning. Okay, And this is what the angelic conflict comes down to is that God has expressed his will and he has issued his decrees from Alpha to Omega. Satan has come along and Satan disagrees. Satan thinks he's got the better plan. Satan utters his five I wills and believes that he will be like the Most High God, which means that Satan has to make himself the standard for truth. And in Satan's mind, to be, to be true equals to be conformed to Satan's views. And if you're not conformed to Satan's views, then, then you're a liar. Okay? This is what it comes down to. This is why we are regarded as deceivers yet true. This is why Jesus himself was called a deceiver. And yet he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so much of what God does here in this angelic conflict is watching out for truth, preserving true knowledge, and overthrowing the words of the treacherous man. And, and every time Satan has a, a plan that gets thwarted, every time Satan has a, a prophecy that doesn't come true, um, the, the God of truth is magnified, he's glorified. Because he's never thwarted, not once. So he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. And the greatest overthrow of all, of course, is going to happen uh, at Armageddon and then ultimately at the Gog-Magog rebellion at the end of Revelation chapter 20. We talk about how pastors today have to deal with this. Titus chapter 1, talking about elders, talking about the overseers. Paul tells Titus that he left him in Crete in order to set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, elders in every city as I directed you. If a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, See, the the pastor's family can be a disqualifier for his ongoing service. But then it switches from the elder language to the overseer language. And that's significant because it switches from the plural to the singular. You may have plural elders in a church, but there is a singularity of the accountable accountable one in the right hand of Jesus Christ. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. If the preacher's just in it for the money, look out. Okay? And uh, if he thinks the, the solution to all church problems is to, to punch the guy in the nose, look out. That's what pugnacious is. Okay? You can't just punch the guy in the nose and solve the church issue. But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Now here comes the Proverbs 22 connection. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. To refute those who contradict. And so the shepherd has to obviously feed his flock, teach what is true, communicate the truth of the word of God to the sheep that need to be fed. and that's. Uh, but it doesn't stop with that. There's also able to refute those who contradict. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. 
And so just like the eyes of the Lord that, that uh, preserve knowledge, that overthrow the words of treacherous men, the, uh, the shepherd of a flock has to be ready to do that, has to be ready to refute, has to be ready to, to confront the rebellious men, the empty talkers, the deceivers. You can't, you can't let your flock be exposed to all that garbage. You've got to stop it. They must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And so it does. It becomes very confrontational as uh, a shepherd who loves his flock is going to be teaching the truth and he's going to be uh, hindering any false doctrine from creeping in. Maybe forcefully if that's what it comes to. All right. We'll have to pick up here next week uh, beyond the omniscience application. It is a primary expression of God's nature. Remember God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Remember God uh, all of these lies are are motivated by pride. All of this opposition to uh, these lies that Satan is promoting, uh, the lies that contradict God's truth are all of them expressions of satanic pride. And uh, God is the, the, if you want to know what God's been doing ever since the, uh, the fall, He's been humbling pride. And He's going to keep on humbling pride. So we'll take a look at those. And then we'll get to the sluggards. The sluggard that says there's a lion outside. The, uh, the mouth of the adulteress in verse 14. And then uh, the foolishness that's bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And then verse 16 really is a restatement from verse 2. He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. I think we've, we've covered everything we're going to cover out of verse 16. We've already dealt with when we approached it from verse 2. So anyway, we're getting close. We're getting close to the end of this section. And then remember, after verse 16 is a significant um, con- context break. Uh, almost like there should be a chapter break there. Almost like we ought to take verse 17 and make that a whole new chapter and start from that moment forward. So uh, we're getting close to that moment. Alright, thank you Father for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this time in your word. We, uh, we praise you and thank you Father in, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.